All right, it's good morning. <clears throat> Turn to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. Continuing in our study in the Gospel of Mark, we, are made, we have made our way through the great chapter on eschatology. And the story continues, and I will read our passage in just a moment here. Friends, how do we measure the value of a thing? You may be a book lover or a book collector. Right now, the 1535 Coverdale Bible, first edition, this is the first printed Bible in English, it's being sold at $695,000. Or Charles Dickens' famous A Christmas Carol, first edition, running for $500,000. Today on eBay, you can purchase a 1987 Topps Pete Rose baseball card for, any guesses? $27,000. So how do we measure the worth, the value of a thing? No one actually knows what something is worth. It's not intrinsic necessarily to the thing. It's worth what people are willing to pay for it. No one's willing to pay $27,000 for a baseball card. Is it really worth that? We see it's worth in what people are willing to pay for it. Friends, how many of us really know what Jesus is worth? Jesus once told a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. You probably know pearls are incredibly unique and they're precious, largely due to the fact that they are the only gem material found and formed within a living creature. Unlike diamonds and rubies and emeralds, pearls require no cutting, no polishing. They're very, very precious and valuable. According to Jesus, there is something about the Christian life that is so profoundly valuable that we must be willing to relinquish all. Empty the bank account, pay the large sum, give up all. And what is this pearl of great value? Well, we would say it's Jesus himself and the kingdom that he offers. In our story this morning, we see three characters around Jesus, the priests and the scribes, the disciples in the home, and then this woman. Each of these characters show us a different way of relating to Jesus, a different way of measuring the value of Jesus. So I want you to pay attention as I read now, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany in the house of Simon Leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume of pure nard. She brought the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? 
For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. This is another one of those Markin sandwiches where you have two pieces of bread on either end that kind of relate to each other, and then you've got a piece of meat in the middle. So what do we have with the bread? We have some opposers to Jesus. We see that in the priests and scribes. We see uh, towards the end that Judas kind of joins that team. But what we have in the middle is this woman who worships. And that really is the heart of the story, this contrast between the religious leaders who are really hostile to Jesus and the woman who offers unhindered worship. Some are going to follow those religious leaders, namely Judas, as he kind of wanders off. Others will learn the way of the woman, the other disciples in the house. So the question for you and I this morning is, which path are we on? Here's the main point of this passage and sermon in a sentence. Those who comprehend Jesus' supreme value will offer him extravagant worship. Those who comprehend or apprehend Jesus' supreme value will offer him extravagant worship. I want to bring before you two contrasting apprehensions this morning. Before I do that, I want to point out in your bulletin, if you're new with us, grab a bulletin. It's a great place to take notes. You'll see the main point. On the right side at the bottom, you'll see some works cited. So I'm drawing from Eckerd Schnabel and Jason Meyer and Kevin DeYoung and others too. But if you want to read up on, on more from this passage, that'll be a great place. And you'll notice in, in real small print at the bottom, next week's sermon text as well. So maybe Saturday night or Sunday morning, uh, feel free to read that passage as you prepare for next Sunday. Okay, so two contrasting apprehensions. First of all, we see the wrong apprehension of Jesus' worth in verses 1 and 2. In these final two chapters of Mark's gospel, Mark reports the events that occurred during Jesus' last two days of his earthly life. This is Passion Week, remember. The events of our passage occurred likely on Wednesday in the late afternoon or early evening. This is just before the Last Supper, which occurred Thursday, the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus' arrest. Everything is kind of accelerating towards the cross. We're almost at the end of Jesus' life. So what happens on this particular night? Well, the camera zooms in on these religious leaders. They are spending their time, notice, secretly plotting. And their aim is clear. They want to kill Jesus. They want to do this by stealth in the shadows because they're enslaved to the fear of man. Put your eyes on verse 2. It seems like you know, everyone likes Jesus. So what will they do to us if we kill him openly and publicly? That's what they're thinking. 
So they're scheming. They're trying to figure out how do we do this quietly and secretly? If you skip down to verses 10 and 11, we see that they end up finding the answer to their search. One of Jesus' own disciples has sought them out, and he's ready to betray Jesus. They've got their answer. They've got a way to kill Jesus and protect themselves. Judas. Now, we ought not be surprised by any of this. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? If we trace out Mark's gospel, we'll see how the religious establishments have responded to Jesus. Over and over again, we see this kind of, this kind of acceleration of their hostility to Jesus. Mark chapter 2. When Jesus was ready to forgive the paralytic sins, the scribes questioned Jesus, saying, who can forgive sins but God? When he reclined at Levi's home, they questioned Jesus, saying, why is he eating with sinners? In Mark chapter 3, after he healed on the Sabbath, the Pharisees set up a meeting with the Herodians for the purpose of destroying him. In chapter 8, the Pharisees demanded a sign to test Jesus. In chapter 10, they show up again to test Jesus. And in chapter 11, after he comes into Jerusalem triumphantly, after he cleanses the temple, the priests and the scribes asked him, hey, wait a second, by what authority are you doing these things? So by the time we get to chapter 12, and Mark says, they were seeking to arrest him. We are not surprised, are we? This whole thing has been on a sort of slow boil. Lots of little pinpricks and paper cuts initially, and now, now we've come to the jabs and the left hooks. By the time we get to Wednesday, Passion Week, the tension is palpable. These religious authorities want Jesus gone. They are offended by him. They are threatened by his power. They are outraged by his claim. They find him wholly blasphemous. And it is the religious establishment that are portrayed as his enemies. They are the ones secretly hostile to Jesus. What about today? Are people today hostile like this to Jesus? You know, there aren't many people who would openly, publicly say, I hate Jesus. Everyone seems to kind of like Jesus, right? I mean, he's a positive figure. But like these priests and scribes, there are covert groups trying to undermine Jesus and his church. It may not happen openly or publicly. Maybe it's just kind of mockery. You may have heard of someone who won uh, an Emmy Award a couple years ago, several years ago now, and said, I like everyone to know that Jesus has nothing to do with this. Most people today don't necessarily want Jesus dead. They just want a different Jesus. Let's cut out the exclusive teachings of Jesus. Hell? You've got to be born again? Repent and believe? Take up my cross and follow him? His atonement to satisfy God's wrath? I mean, these things are offensive. Maybe you've heard uh, people say, I won't believe in a God who would, insert blank, or my Jesus would never, insert blank. There are lots of ways to show hostility to Jesus in the modern world. Sure, there's Hollywood and Disney and Target, and these are all kind of entities where worldly ideologies are being taught or practiced in some way which are undermining Jesus and the ethics of the church. But a closer connection to the priests and the scribes is actually the modern religious establishment. So, so if we were to kind of put the American church under a microscope, what would we have? What will we find? It's kind of dangerous for me to do this, so bear with me, you know. 
I've got a friend who would call himself a pastor, and he's in the mainline church. And on his website, on his church's website, it says, quote, we affirm the teachings of Jesus, but only as one of many ways to experience the divine. We believe in love above all. You can kind of hear the subtext, right? What he's saying there. There's a sort of pick-and-choose theology here. He's kind of Thomas Jefferson the Bible, cutting out the parts he doesn't like. But friends, in doing so, what does it say about how he and his church value the real Jesus of the Bible? Unless we think it's just the mainline church, the evangelical church, I believe, is being threatened with watered-down versions of Jesus, a Jesus that is more formed by our own imaginations than by the truths of the Bible. You've heard it said maybe, you know, God created us in his own image, and we in turn kind of return the favor and try to create him in our image. Sometimes the evangelical church feels more like the evangelifish church. And you might be saying, oh, wait a second, God, when, but they're reaching people with the gospel, you know? They're grabbing at people, and people are showing up. My question is, what is the gospel that they're preaching? What picture of Jesus are they presenting? And if they, they do not apprehend the, the Jesus of the Bible, if they don't, are they not presenting a false Jesus? You can't take Jesus in slices. Jesus isn't like a sunflower seed. You know, you put it in your mouth, you eat the seed, you spit out the husk. Sounds silly, but there is a real danger, I think, in pockets of the American church today. We value Jesus rightly when we take all of him, when we worship all of him, when we follow all of his ways. When we take only parts of Jesus, we actually devalue him. And that's the last thing we want to do for a world that desperately needs the gospel. We want to present a clear, compelling vision of Jesus in all of his fullness, right? And so there's going to be blessings and there's going to be joys and triumphs and all the things that you can promise based on the gospel. But there's also going to be certain teachings, certain things that he says that might offend, certain warnings, certain kind of truths and ethics. If we're going to be a faithful church, and I know we want to be, are we okay with all of the above? Something to think about. The wrong apprehension of Jesus Let's move right now to the heart of the story, the right apprehension of Jesus' word. Put your eyes on verses 3 through 9. Here's the main part of our story, the meats of the sandwich. And we find ourselves in Bethany in the house of Simeon, or excuse me, Simon the leper. He was probably a healed person. Now he's a disciple. We don't know the guests for sure, but likely his disciples, maybe a few others. So this is a pro-Jesus group. And these are his people. This is his team that are in this room. They've seen him do some amazing things, teach and heal and perform miracles with authority. And here we have a, a typical scene of male fellowship at a dinner party. There was a table, not one kind of high off the ground like we're used to, okay? This would be low to the ground, like this low, okay? And, and, and the, the host would typically hand out these little cushions, these little pillows, which you would lean on, you would rest your elbows on the table, and your, your feet would swing out behind you. I experienced this a few times when I was in the United Arab Emirates at Saudi Kitchen. In fact, Dave, where's Dave? Dave, yep, you, you were there with me. And this is how people sometimes still eat in the Middle East today. It's interesting. It's comfortable. It's a little strange. And into this scene walks this woman. 
Now, we've got parallel accounts of this story in John and Matthew's gospel. Apparently, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was this woman. But I want you to notice, Mark does not mention Mary's name here. Why is that the case? I want you to remember one of Mark's emphases is the outsider, how Jesus cares for the outsider. Mary's not enough of an insider to be given a name. It creates a sort of element of surprise as we see what she does. So what does she do? Well, notice she breaks all social conventions and etiquette in coming directly to Jesus. A woman wouldn't interrupt male fellowship like this unless she was serving food or bringing food. She doesn't care. Jesus had captured her heart. She would not be held captive to such cultural constraints. She didn't bring Jesus food. She brought him her heart. Now, as a quick aside, one of the things we must recognize in the Gospels is how Jesus constantly elevates the dignity of women in his interactions. He doesn't denigrate godly masculinity. He upholds that as well. But he also elevates women in a culture that typically pushed them to a side. So remember that. And notice this woman brings an expensive jar of perfume, breaks the jar, pours it over Jesus' head. I had a friend in high school who loved to use expensive German cologne, like 50 bucks a bottle, right? And meanwhile, I'm dabbing some cheap Meyer brand on my neck, you know? 50 bucks, I mean, that's more than I had in my account, you know? That was nothing compared to this perfume. I mean, this cost 300 denarii, which is approximately $30,000. So a year's salary for some of these folks. $30,000 perfume. I mean, come on. That's so over the top, right? And if I were there, I would have scolded her too. I mean, sure, do something nice for Jesus. He's, he's special. He's wonderful. Maybe a little dab of the perfume. You don't have to empty the whole bottle, right? I'm reading a book uh, by Andy Ware called Project Tail Mary. I know some of you have read this book. It's about a man who's on a suicide mission to save humanity, okay? And let's just say you were one of this man's friends, okay? And, and it's the last week before he jumps on the ship to go and save humanity. You might do something special for him, right? I mean, his last gift, maybe you give him a Bible, or you give him an iPad with your favorite songs, right? Or something like that. You do something nice for him. But why would you buy him a $30,000 sports car just days before he leaves? That'd be a waste, right? That's what the disciples are thinking. I mean, what about the poor, they say? You know, there were people in need of food and clothing in Jerusalem at this very moment. Large city, lots of people. In fact, it was customary to give gifts on the evening of the Passover to the poor. So this could have been a remarkable gift to the poor, but now it was gone. It was sinfully wasted. Come on, Jesus. Of course, the Bible is full of commandments to care for the poor. Christians ought to do such a thing, but sometimes people use the poor as a sort of spiritual two-by-four. You bought an iPad? What about the poor? You plan a family vacation? What about the poor? You ate at the precinct? What about the poor, right? The problem here is that the disciples are not apprehending the worth of Jesus. They aren't recognizing the monumental moment at hand with what was to come. They had forgotten who this man really is. 
Son of man, the son of God. One commentator says this, quote, The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or too much power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. You can be any kind of religious you want as long as you're not overly religious. So sure, follow Jesus and love Jesus and consider Jesus, but but don't let Jesus become your all-consuming passion. Don't elevate Jesus so highly that he reorganizes your life and plans and priorities. That's too much. I mean, after all, we've got the poor with us. You've heard it said, don't be so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Okay, I get it, right? My faith needs to be practical and real. But it's also possible that you're so earthly-minded, you're you're mildly religious and awfully practical, that you might not even be a Christian. The foundation for Christianity isn't service for Jesus, but single-minded faith and love for Jesus. Service is the fruit. What is the root? It's worship of Jesus, faith in Jesus, a singular devotion and commitment to Jesus. That's what Jesus commends in this woman. Notice how he runs to her defense starting in verse 6. It says this, Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You have always, you always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Jesus commends her. She's done a noble thing, a beautiful thing, some translations say. What is so impressive about this woman? Well, notice first he says, you've always got the poor with you, but you don't always have me. I think in those last few words, Jesus is telling us what is driving this woman. We see her heart. Her heart is so wrapped up in Jesus. Here is a woman who apprehends the worth of Jesus. Think again about what verse 3 seems to indicate about this woman as she kind of comes in and interrupts this party. She waltzes in, you know, interrupts the fellowship. She is completely out of sync with decorum and frugality. She's interested in one thing, and that's Jesus. Her actions are beautiful and noble and commendable because of her reckless abandon. You know, in a world of FOMO, fear of missing out, this woman challenges our distracted souls. She knows, she knows that when Jesus is around, there is no one greater. There's no experience more sublime, no interaction more thrilling, no contemplation more exhilarating, and no other service more pressing. She has sold everything to gain the pearl of greatest prize, Jesus, his kingdom. They are her most prized possessions. So friends, can we say the same thing? Do we have the same apprehension of Jesus? She had a true apprehension of him, and that led to this full worship. How else might we kind of describe the contours of her worship? I'd summarize it this way, okay? So three quick kind of subpoints here. Her worship was financially sacrificial, surprisingly impractical, and sorrowfully faith-filled. $30,000 perfume, right? Now, how did she get this? Probably a family heirloom. Uh, Maybe she came from a rich family. We don't know. Regardless, this is a lavish gift, isn't it? That's why Jesus says in verse 8, she did what she could. 
And notice she breaks this jar. She can't use this again. This symbolizes the totality of the gift, and it gets at why these disciples were so indignant. She didn't measure out the perfume, you know, in grudging drops, right? She gave all. Complete sacrifice. Complete sacrifice is the only adequate expression for a life that has been redeemed by God. The order in that statement is huge. You know, we, we don't buy our salvation. We don't have a gospel of works. But after God saves us and we respond in faith and repentance, we give him our all. That's the picture that we see here. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, in view of God's saving extravagant mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your true worship. So we must ask ourselves, is my devotion to Christ costing me anything? Is there any deprivation in it? Is there any convenience, inconvenience in it? She has done what she could. How about you and me? Worship is also surprisingly impractical. Is there anything that seems so strange and irrelevant, irrelevant, excuse me, as worship on a Sunday morning? You know, you show up and sing some songs and try to bend your heart to God and his people, whatever that means, and then you go home. I mean, it just feels so impractical, right? Uh, there are a thousand things we could do as a church that would be more practical, more effective. Serve in a soup kitchen or help a widow fix her home or do something in the community that's positive, right? But friends, ultimately, we are not here first for the Milford community or to raise money for a good cause or even to keep our kids out of trouble, or even here first for each other. We are here first because Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our heart's complete devotion. True worship is never wasted. That's what this woman teaches us. It's never irrelevant. It's foundational to all those other things, including evangelism and loving one another. Some of you might need to hear this, so listen closely. Ministry isn't first. Jesus is. Evangelism isn't first. Jesus is. Even church life, even church life isn't first. Jesus is. He is the rocket fuel for all of those things in the Christian life. That's what this woman understands. And finally, let me just point out to you that she worships this way because she is sorrowfully faith-filled. Sorrowfully faith-filled. Where am I getting that from? Look at verse 8 with me again. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. What is Jesus talking about here? You know, three times, three times, Jesus has predicted his own death in Mark's gospel. This is the fourth illusion or prediction. And it appears that the disciples are totally dense. Maybe they've forgotten. I don't know. Or the concept of a suffering Messiah did not meet their expectations. But this woman, she yielded to his teaching. She accepted what was coming. She had faith in Jesus' words. Her Savior Messiah King was going to die. And that's why she did what she did. Because she believed that he would die soon. This action is sorrowfully faith-filled worship. Typically, dead bodies would be anointed for burial. Here, this woman anoints his living body, knowing that he would soon be buried. 
What an act of faith and worship. She is accepting sorrowfully that her Messiah, King Jesus, must suffer and die soon. Full of faith, full of eagerness, sorrowful. And notice how Jesus commends her. I mean, is there no greater commendation than what you read in verse 9? That everywhere the gospel would be proclaimed, in every nation, in every generation, that this story, just as we are talking about it now, this story will be proclaimed. It's not the woman that's going to be commended. It's her example of worship that's commended. Here we are. We're doing it this week. Now, we got to see this in the context of Passion Week. Jesus knows that he is the messianic son of man. He also knows he's the suffering servant, as we read earlier from Isaiah 53. And so the cross is looming ahead. And so what we have here with this woman is the last bit of kindness that he, Jesus, will receive before things start to get really bad. Everyone would leave Jesus. It starts with the priests and the scribes. We see at the end of our passage, Judas, his inner circle in the Garden of Gethsemane, they can't stay awake. Peter betrays him and denies him. By the time we get to chapter 15, Jesus is all alone. And then as he hangs on that cross, you may remember this, what does he cry? He cries out and he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Even the heavenly Father for a time would turn his face away from his son. So Jesus is heading towards all of that, which is why he says here, leave her alone. She knows who I am. She knows where I'm going. She's anointing the king. For one final moment, Jesus is treated as he deserves. She very well could be Mary, but Mark doesn't mention her name. Isn't that interesting? That's not important. It doesn't matter who she is. It matters what she did. Brothers and sisters, would it be okay if you were remembered for nothing else except extravagant devotion to Jesus? Would that be enough for you? Is Jesus worth the sacrifice? Is he worth the obedience? Is he worth the self-denial? Is he worth the pain of a life spent, emptied out for him? He is. And we come to a sort of afterward as we look at verses 10 and 11. Here's the other piece of the bread, right? We've already mentioned it a little bit, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. What this makes clear is that there what what this makes clear is that there is a choice. Every disciple in that room, as they heard Jesus defend this woman, they would need to make a choice. Would the woman teach them about worship and dedication, following Christ? Or would they walk away from Jesus? I think about all the other disciples in the room, Peter and James and John, etc. They weren't perfect. In fact, they would soon, at least for a season, abandon Jesus. But as we kind of fast forward the story into the book of Acts and beyond, we know they would come around, right? They would be set up to be the apostles. They were given the Spirit. They were given the great commission to make disciples of every nation. They would make their choice. They chose to lay down their lives for the worship of Jesus in the nations. They chose that. And they, they would do just that. But then there's this other guy named Judas. 
he would join the villains. He became the very conduit of Satan's schemes. And we know above that all is a God who is sovereign over all things, including the death of his very son. Notice Judas is one of the 12 in verse 10. He spent years with Jesus. He went to all the conferences. He attended all the prayer meetings. He watched the miracles, right? I mean, it's possible to be very close to Jesus, very familiar with Jesus, very closely tied to his followers even, but still not truly know him, love him, worship him, follow him. It's possible to be double-minded, to be a fickle pretender of spiritual things. He heard Jesus' rant about this woman, his commendation of her, and he had enough. He could not worship Jesus like she did. No more, he says. He loved himself a little too much. He also loved money a little too much. Other gospels tell us it was 30 pieces of silver, about $3,000. When we betray Jesus, we will never get back enough. We can sell Jesus out for 30 minutes of late-night fun, a glowing reputation at work, approval from your friends. You will never get back what you give up. Friends, you will either lose this world and gain Jesus like this woman, or you will keep this world and lose Jesus like Judas. The choice is yours. One path is the enslaving path of self-worship. The other path is the freeing path of Jesus' worship. Which path will you choose? You know, there's a real kind of correlation, a real tie, a real cause and effect going on here. I want to point this out to you. There's a correlation between how you see and consider and value Jesus on one hand And the fervency of your daily worship, the the potency of your walk with God, the strength of your devotion, the greater your apprehension, the greater your affection. The more substantial your knowledge of Jesus, the more substantial your dedication to Jesus. So friends, do you, comes back to this, right? Do you really, really, really know Jesus? Do you know him? you love him? Is there affection in your heart for him? Listen, he is higher, deeper, brighter, sweeter, stronger, purer, more glorious, more satisfying, more exhilarating than you can ever comprehend. We've seen this in Mark's gospel, haven't we? This portrait of Jesus. Let me remind you again. Jesus calms storms with words. He heals lepers with a touch. He commands powerful demons with more words. He teaches with unusual authority. He speaks to and dignifies the undignified. He redeems the outsider and he forgives their sins. When unveiled for a moment in glory on a mountain, he radiates with eye-throbbing light and majesty while chatting it up with Moses and Elijah. He is the one who hangs the stars up in the sky and he calls them by name, but then also welcomes and blesses little children. And he will one day come, as we saw in the last few weeks, he will one day come with a sword on a horse with angel armies at his side. Angel armies that he commands to gather up the elect and to judge the living and the dead. 
This just a little, little portrait of Jesus. Friends, there is none like him. No one ever in any age, in every generation, past, present, future. There is none like him. And therefore, therefore, his worth is unfathomable. He is a bottomless well of life and love and joy. He can never be exhausted. His greatness is unsearchable. So what this means, friends, is you can't follow Jesus too closely. You can't love Jesus too intensely. You can't sacrifice for him too radically. You can't worship him too fervently. The Apostle Paul believed this deep in his bones. He once said this in Philippians chapter 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Dallin Forgale said it this way, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder the passage and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.